I'm Joyce Hornady. You might say accuracy is my business. I make bullets. You are listening to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning into the Hornady Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Swerzik. Beside me, Marketing Director, Neil Davies. Neil, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, buddy. So we've got a special guest here today and uh, one that's been influential, not just with Hornady Manufacturing, but with the industry as a whole. Yep. Um, you know, small arms ammunition over the last three decades uh, has, has changed pretty dramatically. And, uh, you know, we've done a lot of innovation internally. And please join me in welcoming our guest on the show, Dave Emery. Thanks, guys. It's good to be here. It's really good to be back and see y'all. This has a, a lot of good memories for me. Yeah, and it, you should. I mean, you, you were here for a long time. You did a ton of work and development for Hornady Manufacturing. Um, but before we get into that, uh, before you were a Hornady employee, you were Dave Emery. So, Dave, tell us where you grew up and, and what a young Dave Emery was doing uh, and what got you into shooting. I grew up in northern Ohio, uh, actually in a place called Oberlin, Ohio, which you guys may have heard of. Um, I lived there until I was about 12 years old, and I found out at a pretty young age my dad was a paratrooper in World War II, and of course instantly became interested in military, and of course that led to keenly interested in guns, and I mean, we, we played Army constantly, driving people in the neighborhood crazy, running around, hiding in their bushes, and mm-hmm shooting at each other and, you know, I got you, no, you didn't, you know, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And my folks moved out to uh, a rural farm country uh, when I was 12. And my dad got me a 22 Magnum Model 94 Winchester. And oh. I spent hours and hours and hours shooting blackbirds and shooting at crows. Yeah. And just, you know, anything that moved, I would shoot that. Yeah. Working and, on the North American Songbird Slam. Yep, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's probably where I really, really got interested in actual shooting and, and ammunition was, you know, starting to play, you know, how does all this stuff work? Mm-hmm. And uh, went to college and got a degree in physics because at the time I, I didn't know what else I was going to do. You know, when you're 18 years old, how many guys know what they yeah. want to do? How many guys choose physics? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always liked tearing stuff apart. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, we lived on a farm, so I was always working on equipment, sure. helping my dad fix stuff. Uh, I was also really interested in motorcycles because in the 70s, motorcycles were very, very popular. And probably once a year, I bought somebody's torn up motorcycle and fixed it up and got it running and rode it around for a while and sold it. So I, you know, I was very inclined towards mechanical things and how do things work. Okay. So my dad just said, hey, why don't you go get a degree in physics? Because that's kind of along the line of what your interests are. And since you don't know what you want to do, that's probably a good thing to do. Oh, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, go be a scientist. Yeah. Yeah. And graduated from college. And at that point in my life, I was rather interested in astronomy. So I got this job at the very large array radio telescope down in central New Mexico. Worked there for a year and decided that, well, you know, they could pretty much train somebody with about a sixth grade engineer or education to sit here and watch these computer reels at the time go around and load somebody's program and you know sit there and it's like this is completely mindless that's not for you yeah so i enlisted in the air force and i wanted to fly and they saw the physics degree and said "Eh, no we let the guys with the phys ed degrees and you know psychology degrees be pilots we need engineers okay yeah so they sent me back to school and i got an aeronautical engineering degree and 18 months taking 20 hours a quarter with no humanities courses that was the hardest work i ever did in my life i bet airport, my goodness air force institute of technology at wright patterson and that so did you get a commission and then they and then you went through that training yes. okay. i went through ots got a commission and then went to school as a second lieutenant got promoted shortly afterwards to a first lieutenant so then they sent me out to now, let me think. I tried to get into a flight test squadron so I could at least fly back seat and stuff. Well, the personnel people back then, nothing was computerized, and they lost my records. <laughs> and every other guy in my graduating class had a job, and I didn't. And they, the personnel guys from uh, San Antonio came back around, and I said, hey, uh, where are you going to send me? Well, who are you? That uh, mean I can take this degree and walk out the door? No, you can't do that. So they, <laughs> they found a home for <laughs> you. They gave me a couple of options, and something was on the middle of the East Coast. And it's like, no, nah, I don't want to go there. And then the other one was out at uh, Norton Air Force Base, which isn't there anymore, out in San Bernardino, California, mm. working at the Ballistic Missile Office. 
And that's where I got into energetics because I spent that whole time down at White Sands Missile Range blowing some really big holes in the desert. We were doing uh, five kiloton ANPO shots down at White Sands testing nuclear weapons effects. You know, Dave, I guess, you know, one thing we should probably kick off before we get too deep in this was, you know, Dave... Dave was our ballistician here yeah, for a long time. Senior so, ballistic I mean, scientist. All this is leading up to, you know, what he did with us for how long, Dave? 20? 23, going yeah. on almost 24 years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So for, yeah, two decades and change, uh, I still have some of your old business cards because they were in the desk uh, when I became a ballistician. Yeah. Was yeah. Senior ballistic scientist. Yeah. Was the, was the title. Yeah, that was, that was Margaret's idea of what I should have for a title and so I could Sounds kind of long and a little bit hokey to me, but okay. Whatever, yeah, that's kind of what you were. It's kind of what you were. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, a good point, Neil. Thanks for bringing that yeah, up. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, there's a little context missing from the story. Yep. Yeah, so I was uh, three years doing all of that stuff, and that's where I kind of started getting some visibility and handle on you know instrumentation and electronics and all that kind of stuff and test techniques and how to test and how to set up tests and all that kind of stuff. And then I got transferred to the Pentagon because they said, oh, man, you're a fast burner. You're going to be an 06 below the zone and all that kind of stuff. And then they made the mistake as a junior captain sending me to the Pentagon. It's like, oh, my gosh. Puzzle palace. How do yeah. people survive in this place? And how do people live in Northern Virginia? Yeah, where full bird colonels get coffee for generals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So here I am, a junior captain in the Pentagon. But I was filling an 06 slot in the stealth technology office and... It was an interesting job. I had a couple of different projects I was doing on stealth stuff and working in an office full of guys that flew, you know, the stealth fighter and all that kind of stuff and heard some great stories, but they were sending me out to the West Coast all the time. And that was, I guess, my one big claim to fame in the military, which has now all been declassified. But at the time it was, we were down, that was when the SALT II Treaty kicked in and they were taking the outcomes off, the nuclear outcomes off of the B-52s. And I got there Two months before they did the Libyan raid on Gaddafi, after they blew up the nightclub in Germany and killed all the guys yeah. and all that. And they said, you know, the F-111 guys did just fine going in there, but we'd really like a highly accurate autonomous weapon system that doesn't risk a person. Because back then everything was, uh, you know, laser guided. And so we said, there was three or four of us sat down and we sat down with Boeing and said, you know, what can we do for this? And somebody said, well, you know, this GPS satellite's stuff's coming online and we'll have our first you know constellation up here in like you know about a six months and it turned into huh could you take an alchem and could you put a gps receiver on this thing and what kind of warhead can we get on this and this is when i started to get my devious side of me and they <laughs> boeing said well we're going to download half the fuel and this thing will have a 600 mile range now instead of 1200 miles and we're going to put was it 700 pounds of PBX explosive in the empty fuel tanks, which is a huge amount of explosive. You know, a 2,000 pound bomb has 400 pounds of explosive in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And they said, and, but we need some counterweight. We're going we're gonna to put a 200 pound blob of steel up in the nose. And I said, no, you're not. You're going to take one inch steel bearings and you're going to epoxy them in the bottom of this fuel tank where all the explosive is. So you're going to get these one inch steel ball bearings coming off this warhead oh, at like yeah. 12,000 feet per second. <laughs> oh, hey, that's a great idea. That is a great yeah, idea. So we tested some of those actually down where I worked in New Mexico and they had some BMPs and a couple of T-55s and they put those out there and we tested like a one foot section of this explosive. And we were literally firing those one inch ball bearings through both sides of a T-55. Hmm. Which is just like, and we, I mean, we clocked them on a high-speed camera and you know, these yeah, things were coming up, fast. they were going about 12,000 feet per second, which is just, okay, this is ridiculous. That's a made-up speed. It's ludicrous speed. Yeah. yeah it, it really is. So that wow. that was when I started getting yeah. into the, you know, hey, how do you mess around with this energetics kind of stuff? So Yeah. I mean, you did your thing. Yeah. You know, whether you were flying a plane or yep. craft and stuff like that. That, that was my one claim to fame in the military. Fighting I, the good I was fight. a program manager for the Air Force for the first GPS guided weapon system. That's cool. Wow. That is pretty. And at the time, everybody was like, ah, oh, that's just a flash in the pan. This stuff isn't going to work. It's like, yeah, oh, really? <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. Fast forward just <laughs> but, a few years. Yeah, but that was 90, no, 80, 87. And that was right when they were just first starting to get the GPS satellites mm-hmm. up. And you had to have four of them to have a constellation to get yeah. the whole system to work. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So when did the Air Force start to look like less of a career and more of just a temporary job? When did you decide to make a transition? I absolutely loved the military. And I still feel a connection to and 
think extremely highly of the military, but it was, uh, when I enlisted, I was ready to be a combatant. I mean, I was mentally prepared. My wife was too. I'm going to go be a pilot. And they didn't let me do that. So, you know, okay, you shoved me over in an engineering job and it's like, okay, that's great. This is fun. I'm getting to do some cool stuff. And then when they sent me to the Pentagon, it's like, holy cow. I mean, is anybody really in charge in this place? Mm-hmm. Is anybody really looking at the big picture? It seems to me like it's just a bunch Career. of special yeah. interest groups of as long as I get my piece of the buy of the money, I don't care what happens to anybody else. It's mm-hmm. like, who's really running this whole thing? Oh, wow. And I kind of got disillusioned and of course hated living in Northern Virginia and basically came to the point, you know, Kurt was born in Washington, D.C. Okay. And son, it was yeah. basically, okay, so. Yeah. And uh, where? Fort Belvoir. Well, we went for the pediatric care there, Okay, but the cesarean section rate there was 60%, and my oh. wife said, I ain't doing that, nah. so Kurt was actually born at home with a midwife. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And uh, I just said, you know, I'm a non-combatant now. I'm basically just an engineer, which is great. I love this, but you're sending me TDY to the West Coast three weeks out of the month. I don't really think I want to live like this if all I'm ever mm. going to be as an engineer, and I said, okay, thanks. This has been great, but... I think, I'll, I think I'll go be a civilian and have a normal family life. Yeah. And I had done work down in New Mexico at uh, the place that I just retired from after five years permanently now. <laughs> was it the university then? New or? Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology. It's, so it was then it's, too? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And got a job there and went down there and here's all of these World War II era howitzers and anti-tank guns and M48 tanks and M60s and all this kind of stuff. It's like, hey, this is really kind of cool. Yeah. And uh, another guy and I that uh, wound up being the director of the place, we were both snotty those young kids in our mid and late 20s at that point in time. And they had a guy doing a lot of ballistics work that had not a clue what he was doing. His basic approach to ballistics was, well, you put powder in it until we can't get the breech open anymore, and then you got to back off a little bit. Well, that worked sometimes, but there were all these guns out there with seized up breeches and split barrels, and it's like, okay, there's, there's got to be a better way to do Sounds that. Sounds like some of the folks that call the tech line from Yeah, no, yeah, kidding. yeah. <laughs> so I decided, hey, look, there's got to be, there has to be science involved in this, and started doing a whole bunch of research. And, of course, the Internet was in its infancy then. Mm-hmm and dug out a whole bunch of the, you know, DTIC army document. You guys have probably seen oh, yeah. some of that stuff since you were both military and started finding some of this stuff and reading about it. And I basically went on a five-year self-taught program mm. of learning how ballistics work, getting software from the army that they used and figuring out how to use that, how to model. I spent a ton of time modeling interior ballistics and making propellant models to run these programs. And that's where I really got into the ballistics as it applied to what I did at Hornady. Um, the guys down at St. Mark's, I had done work for them and they knew what my abilities were. And they called me up one day and said, Hey, you want to come down here and help us make powder? And I thought that was probably a career progression. So I did it. Yeah. And St. Mark's Uh, is a a domestic powder manufacturer. The only one here in the U S right They're Last I knew they were about the largest propellant ammunition manufacturer in the world, basically. Oh, wow. Those guys. Yeah. I mean, they're making it for. Military, Howitzers foreign and militaries, yeah. everything. Yeah, I mean, they make huge amounts of propellant. And I went down there for two years and learned how to make propellant and learned how all that worked. And in the process of that, developed what was the light magnum, which was, okay, how you know, how can you get more performance out of existing cartridges? And we were so able to- So did Hornady work with you on that at St. Mark's at the time? We, we had developed it internally at St. Mark's and figured out how to make propellants where you could- it, what it was, it was a mechanical compaction process. You were filling a full case, sticking a punch in the case, packing that powder down, and then topping it off with more. And you got you were at about 110% um, case fill capacity because you were mechanically packing yeah. the stuff in there and t- mm-hmm. you know, forcing all the air out of it. And we had it down to where it was perfected, and we know how to do it. And you know, we had hydraulic systems where we could load cartridges there. It wasn't mass production, but we had figured out how to make the powders, how to you know, it all survived. It all worked. We could get what we wanted. And we went to federal first with it and they were like, nah. And so I didn't know much about Hornady at the time. And, you know, Hey, you know, Hornady is a small company. Maybe they'd be open to something like this and they're not stuck in the rut of, you know, this is the way we've always done it. And I think I called up Ron Bond. Oh yeah. 
and said, hey, you know, I introduced myself and we started talking. And he said, well, yeah, let me go talk to Steve. And, he, and I got a call from Steve about two days later and told him what was doing. And I said, you guys be interested? And he said, yeah, we'd be interested. Come on out. And so I took the stuff and went out and went all through it and showed everybody. And Steve said, yeah, we'll do that. All right, great. Wow. And so that. Heck of a salesman. Put that on yeah, your list too. And uh, we basically, they signed up for it. And about six to eight weeks later, he called me up and he said, uh, you'd be interested in a ballistician job and running the lab. And at that time, <laughs> <laughs> just get it pretty get, casual. Get something straight out of your vendors. Yeah. 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 yeah and uh, at that time I was thinking, you know, this job is great, but it's very one dimensional. And I'd like to get in a whole lot more. You know, I was interested in exterior ballistics and bullets and bullet design and all that kind of stuff. And St. Mark's for me was very one dimensional. It was just, you design propellant, that's it. Mm-hmm. And it was at that time very, very heavily. It was like 75% military. And this was right when Clinton got elected. And it's like, these guys could potentially go through some pretty bad times here in the near future. And I said, yeah, you know what? I want to get into the commercial side of this because that's probably better job security. And Hornady does all this kind of cool stuff. I'd really like to know how this works and I'd like to know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And I came here in February of 94. One thing led to another, and it probably took me uh, six to eight years to really get Steve to the point where he just trusted me and just said, Dave, just go. (laughs) And the key point in that was the 17 HMR. And that's, I mean, that's another really long, funny story, which I don't know if you'd want to get into here. No, I want to. Yeah. And and we do. We'll do But I want to take you on a detour first because- if this whole conversation ends up with just being the timeline of your experience at Hornady, I think we'll be missing out on something. So I think it's very important that you talk a little bit about Bob, right? Your dad? Yeah. Bob? Yep. Yep. So uh, Dave's dad's story is very interesting, uh, where he was born and when he lived and then what he did. So I, I want to make sure that you touch on that. And Absolutely. And then I think we could, I think, then I think we should come back to all yeah. the Hornady stories because yeah. I know that your dad is a huge part of your life, yep, obviously. And, you know, there's just, it's a, and it's a big, cool story that it's a story of America. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, he was a big part of my life. And I, I have to say at the point of now being officially a senior citizen, he, and looking back on my life, he had a very impact, big impact on my life and my thinking and my motivations and all that kind of stuff but my dad was uh his parents immigrated from england right after world war one his dad served in the british infantry in world war one he was born in lorraine ohio and i think he was like a year old and they moved back to england and he lived there till he was like 11 i think so he lived in england for 10 years moved over here and I can remember him telling my dad made me wear knickers and I just hated him for that. You know, I always got made fun of awkward in front of him. Yeah. And my dad is probably one of the most intellectual, smartest people I've ever known. He graduated from high school at 16 in 1942 and he worked for two years and then basically his parents didn't want him to enlist and he just told him I'm enlisting. And this was in uh, late 40, yeah, October of 43. He went and tried to enlist in the Navy because he wanted to fly. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the Navy had the thing where you had to have basically perfect teeth because of their oxygen masks and they had to fit a certain way and everything else. And they told him, you know, sorry, you know, we can't take you because your, your teeth your aren't straight enough. Yeah. So he said, all right, well, heck with this. I'm going to go enlist in the Airborne. So he enlisted in the Airborne, and two weeks after he did that, he got a letter from the Navy that said, hey, we got this figured out. Come on back. And he said, sorry, too late. <laughs> so he just barely missed the whole band of brothers first group that went out. He was in the 101st Airborne, 506 Regiment. He was a couple companies down from E Company, the band of brothers. He knew Dick Winters because he wound up being first sergeant for I Company at the end of this. So he had interaction with Dick Winters and some of those guys. But other than D-Day, because he got, I think he said he got to England on D-Day, or just a day or two afterwards, and he was the first wave of replacements that joined up with all those guys when they got back from Normandy. And he, if you watch Band of Brothers from right after Normandy all the way to the end of the war, my dad 
was in all of that. Holland. Did he jump in? Oh, yeah, he jumped into Holland. There was only four airplanes shot down into Holland, and he was on one of them. Oh, Mm -hmm. man. And he said, we got hit. He said, the left engine caught on fire, and he said, I was one of the last guys out of the plane. And he said, I was about 400 feet when I went out, and he said, my chute opened about 75 feet above the ground. Yeah. And he said it slowed me down, but I had no yeah, chance to maneuver. Hard, huh? And he, well, he said I landed right on a barbed wire fence. He said I couldn't miss it. <laughs> and he said it just absolutely shredded my pants, the back of my legs, my butt, everything else. And he said I was I was a hurting unit, but he said I he was alive. Yeah, he was alive. And he said I took the pants off the first dead German I came across to have put some pants back on. And he said about two hours later, I decided, yeah, you know, this probably isn't the best environment to be in a mixed uniform. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so he took the pants off a dead American that he found and got in a U.S. uniform. But he trained in England as a first scout, which was basically the guy that went 400 yards out ahead of the whole company with an 03A3 sniper rifle. Mm. And was supposed to basically get fired on or find out where the Germans were. And he said it was really I thought it was kind of stupid, but fire tracers at the Germans. Well, I said the problem with that was, was the Germans could see where the tracers yeah, were coming right. from. Mm-hmm. And so he said, you fired and got the heck out of there about a hundred yards and then, you know, kind of kept going. But, uh, that was where my motivation for, you know, the CMP sniper match came in and, and getting into all of that. Cause of what my dad did with that, but he said, yeah, I, in fact, he said, as far as I know, I was the very first guy in Eindhoven, our, uh, Holland. I, Eindhoven, Holland, because he said, um, I company led the 101st into Eindhoven. And he said, hey, I'm walking down the street here, creeping from, you know, doorway to doorway. And he said, some German started shooting at me out of this church steeple with an MP40. And he said, I thought that was kind of stupid because, you know, 150 yards, you can't hit a broadside of a barn with one of those things. And he said, I wasn't exactly sure where the guy was, but I shot where I thought he was. And he said, apparently I got him because there wasn't any more firing. Yeah, no more noise. Yeah. And he said, once we got into, you know, Eindhoven and the house to house fighting, he said, I got rid of that 03A3 in a hurry and picked up a Garand because he said that just, you weren't going to go into a house with a bolt action rifle. Mm -hmm. But he just, I mean, I could go on for hours about what my dad did in the war. I mean, he wound up uh, getting bronze star, three purple hearts, silver star. Yeah, I mean, he was, Highly decorated. At Bastogne, his company was basically getting cut off by the Germans, and a German Jeep came by with an MG42 on it, and he said, I got lucky. He said, "These there were two guys in it, and he said, I was in, hiding in the ditch, and he said, I lucked out and timed it just perfectly, popped the spoon on a grenade and tossed it up in the air, and it came down right in the Jeep and blew up and killed them both, and he said, I turned it around and drove back into the German lines and stopped their infantry with that MG42, and then the tank showed up, and he said, oh, crap. And he said, I turned around, I was trying to get out of there. And he said, the second shot, they hit the Jeep. And he said, I bailed out of that thing and finally got back to the lines. But they decided that what they said, what his commendation for the Silver Star said was they basically stopped the Germans long enough and distracted the tanks long enough for his company to be able to withdraw. Wow. And he said, that night I finally got back to U.S. lines. And he said, Bastogne was as bad as all the books said. He said, we, yeah. for like a week, we had almost no food. And he said, it was so cold. Yeah, wow. I don't know how you deal with that. But and, I, and you gotta and you gotta tell about the Luger. Oh yeah, um, the Luger was in the middle of January when they'd finally stopped the Germans and were starting to push them back and and push them back out of there. And uh, they were, what did he say? There was like eleven guys left walking in his company out of one hundred and thirty-two that went in there. And he said, I was I was the guy leading the company. He said I was the highest ranking NCO as a staff sergeant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he said, we were coming out of some woods and got attacked by a German panzer. And he said, the bazooka guys hit it and it stopped. And he said, I was the first guy on the tank. And he said, I had a pin pulled on a grenade and lifted the hatch to throw it in. And he said, it was pretty obvious. I didn't know need to do that and put the pin back in it. And he said, the commander was in pretty bad shape. He said, he'd been hit by the jet from the, um, bazooka. And he said, this guy was... He said he didn't have any head left and his chest was about gone. He said, but then I saw a Luger on him. And he said, my best friend from high school who went into the Merchant Marines who got hurt real bad by a kamikaze, he said, wanted me to bring him back a Luger. So I cut the guy's belt and pulled this Luger off and stuck it in my musket pack and kept going. And I knew from a kid looking through all his war stuff, you know, he had the little, you know, okay to bring this piece of stuff Mm -hmm. back, you know, signed by some first lieutenant somewhere. And, hey, dad, where's the Luger? 
because I knew what a Luger was, you know, oh, at about yeah. eight years old. Yeah. And, you know, I gave it to my best friend in high school. And I thought, oh, really? Come on, man. And so, yeah. you know, I just kind of ignored that. And um, what year was it? It was about 2006. And I got a call from my dad, and he said, hey, Gordy called me up and asked me if I wanted that Luger back. And I told him no. And I said, no, you call yeah. Gordy back and, and tell him I want that Luger. Luger, and I'll buy it from him if I have to, but I want that Luger. And I got a letter from his friend Gordy about a week and a half later that said, oh, I'd be delighted to send you this Luger, and I know how this stuff works, and what you know, it's part of your dad's history and all that. And so this package came, and it's like, well, what's going to be in here? And I opened this thing up absolutely pristine luger i mean not a mark on it there's a little bit of wear on the muzzle from where it was in the holster yeah i mean the guy was a tanker he probably, yeah yeah he yeah and it, it was a russian a russian tokarev um holster i think so oh, it's really? like, you know at that time i mean huh. the germans were grabbing whatever they could get to put stuff in but i mean this was a it's a 1937 mauser luger it's still got the yellow straw color on the uh extractor and the trigger and everything else and it's like Man, this thing is just absolutely pristine. And it's like that. Yeah. That's a pretty cool piece of history and yeah. got to be uh, not chilling, but I don't know what, uniquely connected to hold on to something that that many years yeah. ago, your dad reached down into a tank, yeah. cut it off a guy's belt, and you're yeah. holding that same piece of history. I know. It, it, it's it's sobering in a, in a lot of yeah. ways. But I mean, I could tell you stories of my dad's because I researched that for about 10 years. I mean, mm -hmm. I read everything I could find on he, In fact, he's in a couple of books. Um, I think there was a guy by the name of George Koskamaki. He was a radio operator for the headquarters company, the 506. Okay. And he wrote a whole bunch of books. And my dad's mentioned in one of them when they were in Holland. And uh, it said that the Germans were infiltrating across the Rhine and doing these nighttime raids on the Americans all the time that were stationed on the other side of the Rhine. And my dad's company was stationed in like this apple orchard. And it said this trooper by the name of Emery, they spelled the last name wrong. They yeah. spelled it E-M-E-R-Y. But I said, that's got to be my dad. And mm -hmm. it said this trooper Emery, you know, wired all of these grenades in these apple trees and had all these pole wires back to like this outhouse. And they said he would sit in there for half the night. And if he heard somebody, you know. Just give it a go. And, and he said <laughs> after that, he said nobody went into this apple orchard. Yeah. And I called up my dad and I said, dad? did you do this? And I kind of heard him chucking. Yeah, I did that. <laughs> Just, like, yeah. Come on in. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's ingenuity right there. Yeah. But I mean, I could, we could make four hours of stories out of yeah. what my dad did. I've got it all. He went to, I think when we went to Camp Perry, the first year we did the sniper match, which was what, maybe 10. Yeah. About then. They invited him there and they spent two and a half hours. Their historian interviewed him and I've got the whole oral history. Of that. Cool. Yeah. But it's, you know, he told me at the time, he said it was the greatest adventure of my life, but he said, I'd never want to do it again. Yeah. And his, my dad's memory just absolutely astounded me that, you know, 70 years after this thing, 65, 70 years after this thing happened, because I sent him home a lot of the books that I read and just the stuff that he remembered. And then he could remember guys' names and where they were from and what it's like, yeah, dad, I'll I graduated 35 years after you did. And I can't remember 90% of the people yeah. in my graduating class. And yeah. you remember almost every single one of these guys. Yeah. Obviously very impactful time of his life to, to lock yep. those memories. Yep. And yeah, truly a, an American hero from the, from the sounds of it. And he went on to be uh, a mechanical engineer mm -hmm. and he wound up his career as the uh, director of research and development for the medical instrument um, part of corning medical equipment. Oh, so, okay. I mean, he was quite accomplished now, like yeah. i said one of the smartest as an 80 year old guy sitting there at home on his recliner the guy could recite poetry from high school yeah. and it's just he uh, he gifted. always yeah he always amazed me just extremely intelligent guy yeah well it's 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 awesome to think that there are people like that obviously i'm not one yeah, of them i'm not one of but them either it's, it's comforting <laughs> to know that there are some people that just uh uh yeah seem to just just no, I mean, it. I, I obviously, so Dave and I, have, when I came here in 04, known Dave for a long time and spent a lot of time with him and his stories of his dad are just incredible. Yeah. Um, but he have obviously yeah. played a huge part in how you developed as a man. And he was very, very mechanically inclined and he passed a lot of that on to me and a lot of that yeah. 
interest and desire. And it's, I mean, I credit my dad for a lot of it because he was the one that probably really motivated me the most and pushed me in this direction. Yeah. Well, then we need to give uh, a lot of the praise, not to you, Dave, but to your father, yep. because yes, I'm fine with if that. he handed it down to you. <laughs> oh, Dave, you did your own thing. Yeah. You did okay. I, I did my own thing. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Well, once you got here, it seems like you quickly went to work and we'll, you know, there's going to be separate podcasts out there after this about individual projects and we'll hit on a lot of them today not in uh, as much detail but it seems like right out of the gate if you started here in february of, two th- of 1994 uh if i'm not mistaken the vmax bullet 96 was, was released in 96 and, and amax was 97 and yeah, yeah. I, light, light and heavy magnum night light and heavy, heavy magnum was fall of 94 yeah that's so you he, got and boy, that that one ticked me off because and I mean this we, is so ninety four yeah. too. Remember this? That was the beginning. I mean, that's the yep. the Brady Bill yep. happened. So. Right. So we did light and heavy magnum in ninety four, and Federal came out with high energy in ninety five or ninety six, and this was another one of those turning points for me working here. And they got product of the year for high energy, which was exactly the same thing as light oh, and yeah? heavy magnum was, and we did it two years before, and that's when I really got on the bandwagon. Okay. Let's, let's yeah, design we'll, some stuff. Yeah, let's go we'll, toe to we'll, toe. We'll see about this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you've had a chip and, on your shoulder. Yeah, I had that put a chip on my shoulder at that point. No, in time. I mean, Dave, Dave's a competitive guy. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I mean, it's about winning, but doing good things. Oh, well, if you do good things, the accolades people just will yeah. recognize I, it. I know? can remember having a number of conversations with Steve about why is the interest industry doing this and doing it this way and why hasn't anybody looked at anything different well that's just the way it's always been done yeah well that's a dumb reason right that is I yeah mean, come on there's there's a lot more stuff out there than this and there's a lot more technology and understanding of technology than this i mean we're still dealing back here in the 1950s yeah yeah, yeah well with when you're looking at the like interlock bullet for example still a great bullet Good design but, but yeah. at the time in in the early and mid 90s you can do better things. So yep. we worked through the tipped bullets, like you said, in 94, the AMAX in 1997. But I mean, a, ballistics is a really obscure science, I guess, mm-hmm. but I don't even know how to explain it. It was just something that really, really interested me and really, really motivated me. It's like, I, I want to know how this works and I want to know how to do this stuff. And yeah. Just, and you your know, formal education and, and your time with the Air Force really aligns well it, with. All of that kind of played into it. And, you know, not that I'm purposely trying to stroke Steve or anything, but he, I think he saw the potential and what could happen after the first few things that we did and what the capabilities were here. And when I can remember the conversation one day, he finally just said, you know, just let me know what you're doing. You just go off and do your thing. Just let me know what you're doing. And that's when stuff really took off. Yeah. And what a compliment to get that from the president. He supported it. He just, you know, I, I give Steve a lot of credit for that. Yeah, and it takes. Hey, he let you he let you run. He gave you the reins. Yep. Yeah, and I, and, and I mean, some of this stuff was risky. I mean, lever evolution. I mean, yeah. I can remember us talking about that. He's like, oh man, I don't know. Do you really think this will sell? Like, yeah, I think he'd sell the living daylights out of this. Yeah. All right, we'll try it. You know, and it's, well, you've created the standard in air quotes of a lot of things. When you look at varmint bullets, I mean, the VMAX bullet industry wide. I mean, there's plenty of good varmint bullets out there, but the Hornady VMAX is kind of the bullet it's turned into the standard yeah Yeah, and the same thing with lever evolution i know yep. there's a lot of people that the 4570 325 grain lever evolution that's the 4570 ammo yeah yeah, yeah. It, it is yeah you've created a lot of quote-unquote standards and now before we got into the, the the part about your father neil mentioned the 17 hmr or you had mentioned rather yeah, yeah. where steve handed you the reins and said i trust you to run with it <laughs> Uh, hold on. No, that was, yeah, that was on. after yeah. the 17 yeah. okay. yeah. 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 We can joke. all laugh about it now, and it's a joke. But it, mm-hmm. I mean, at the time, I was kind of bored. And I mean, and I wanted to do something that I didn't know how to do, and I was honestly kind of bored. And uh, I said, you know, I want to know. I basically said, oh, how does this CAD stuff work? So I kind of rudimentarily taught myself how to do CAD work and started messing around chamber drawings and cartridge drawings and all that. And my dad, oh, I don't know, at that top point in time, he was in his late 70s and he'd had a 22250 that I got him in 1975 for Christmas. And he said, man, I, Dave, I just don't really want to shoot this thing anymore. It's loud and it's more recoil than I really want to put up with. And he was always shooting woodchucks and he had uh love birds he had all kinds of bird feeders out there and he 
damn squirrels are getting in my bird feeders, you know. And yeah, he had a 22, and he said, ah, I can't hit him very good with this 22. So I had built him, basically custom built him a, a 22 Magnum, you know, glass bedded the thing, put a recoil lug on it, you know, lapped the barrel. I mean, it, I still have that gun. And with the the 30 grain VMAX load, that gun will shoot under one inch at 100 yards, which is phenomenally accurate for a 22 Magnum. Right. And I was going to send that home to him. And in fact, I did. I gave it to him, and he says, "Yeah, this works pretty good." And at the time, I thought, you know, this twenty-two Magnum is kind of an interesting case. You know, what would happen if you neck this thing down to seventeen, and put an itty bitty little Vmax bullet in this thing? And you know, what's out there for powders? And I found out that about ten years before that, um, Federal and Rick Jamison had messed around with it, but you know, they the powders they had at the time and the chamber designs they had at the time, they really didn't get enough out of it to make it look, you know, really interesting. And they were having problems with blowing the case heads and all that kind of stuff. And Doug Derner was in the lab back then, right? No, no, Doug he was, wasn't. Doug was customer service. Oh, at he that was. Time. Okay. But he, he and I, because like there was the far targ and like, right. There wasn't there some oh, other yeah, little the, things yeah, around that. All that stuff led to the 204 Ruger. Okay. Mm-hmm. But so I started messing around with that and I made up my own little, sizing die and got some called up Brett Olin at CCI and got you know 522 Magnum cases and I started sizing down these cases and I kind of got with uh I think the original bullets I made I was taking the 25 grain hollow point and I was parting off the back of the bullet to get down to you know like a 17 18 grain bullet and started messing around with powders and was trying to estimate pressures and all that off of you know measuring head expansion with a micrometer and all that kind of stuff and kind of came to uh, you know little gun and said man you know i can get like 25 2600 foot per second out of this bullet and that's boy you know that's crowding pretty hard on a 22 hornet and a little rimfire and decided to make a gun and i had a sears 22 it was made by marlin but it was a sears branded 22 that i got from my grandfather who my grandmother took away from him when he shot a hole in the roof oh (laughs) yeah and uh i rebuilt that restocked it uh i took an old shot out 17 remington barrel that kevin had and it was i mean i looked at the thing with you know the bore scope and it had about three inches of freeboard in it you know so i cut it off to 21 inches and had a chamber reamer made by pacific or somebody yeah and put a gun together and started shooting it's like holy cow this thing is really accurate and Doug and I went out and started messing around with it and shot some prairie dogs. And I mean, we were hitting prairie dogs at 200 yards with this little rim fire and, you know, shot some raccoons and all that kind of stuff. And I think it was a lunchtime. I was messing around loading up a few more rounds of ammo and Steve came down and saw it. And he said, what are you doing? Oh, I've just been messing around with this on the weekends and on my lunchtime. Well, what is it? Oh, it's a 22 Magnum neck down to 17. I'm just, well, why are you doing this at work? Well, I, I'm not doing it. Yes, okay, I'm, use, I'm using your electricity in the lab. Sorry, Steve, but I'm yeah. doing all of this on my own. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing all of this on my own time, okay? Well, I, I don't want to see you messing with this anymore because this is an approved project, and, I, you know, you quit doing this, and if I see you messing with this anymore, I'm going to fire you. Okay, I'll quit messing with it. And, uh, of course, I kept messing around yeah, with it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, president and, of the company uh, says stop. <laughs> so I, I finally got it really figured out. Black ops, re- man. Yeah, Black really ops. working, and I kind of started approaching with him with this, with it and i said steve man this i really think this thing would just absolutely take over the rimfire world because i said it's it's a transparent change to the 22 magnums out there it's a barrel change nothing else that's it magazines ah no nah, we're not messing with that and so this went on for oh i don't know three or four months so i finally said okay we're we're gonna make this a little more interesting here and at that time i was pretty good i can't even remember the guy's name now but he wrote small caliber news you might have remembered that magazine yeah sure it was a i've got his contact info price still on my phone somewhere quarterly magazine yeah. i think but it was out of all ohio or pennsylvania yeah he was out of ohio yeah. and it was a guy that was writing a, a nice little magazine all about hunting and shooting and cartridges for you know small caliber you know 14 yeah. 17 20s that kind of stuff and I wrote a complete article about this little 17 I'd been messing with. your with. name or some? No, 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 yeah, no. It wasn't yeah. my name. And, you know, all the performance I'd got and everything else. And I, I put, you know, as an author, you know, Paul Davis. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and I did it because I knew Steve got that magazine because I saw it sitting on his desk. And I said, well, let's just see what happens here when this comes out. And Why came, Paul Davis? 
Is that a, is that still a I, secret? I lived, in, I lived in St. Paul, Nebraska, okay. on Davis Street. Yeah, so, my, so oh, that's what. Yeah. So Paul, there's a few articles that have been yeah. written by Paul, Paul Davis. Davis. Yes. Years, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I and I knew the magazine came out, and about the next day, Steve came running down here. He goes, "Dave, did you see this magazine?" I said, what, <laughs> yeah. what, I said, "What magazine is that?" See, this small caliber news. I said, "What about it?" Well, this guy by the name of Paul Davis wrote this article about this all this stuff you've been telling me about. And he goes. Man, this really looks good. And I'm thinking, oh, come on. He's pulling he's, my, yeah, he's he pulling must my have known. leg here. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, well, yeah, let me have it. I'll read it. And, and I let this go on for about a week. And he's like, man, you know, Dave, this guy's writing exactly what you're, you're working on here. And so I finally went down to his office one day. I said, Steve, can, can, we, can we use four-letter words on this whole thing? Yes. I said, are, are, are you shitting me or what, Steve? And he goes, well, what do you mean? I said, you're pulling my leg, aren't you? And, he said, and, and, and I said, do you know who Paul Davis is? Well, yeah, it's some guy named Paul Davis. And I said, no, you big dummy. That's me. <laughs> and he said, you? He said, how'd you come up with Paul Davis? I live in St. Paul, Nebraska, Steve, on Davis Street. <laughs> oh, you son of a bitch. Every yeah. <laughs> and then after that, it got into, I don't want you talking to anybody else about this. He said, I'm going to go out through Daryl Inman at CCI. And we're going to talk about this. And so it, it, it got going. <laughs> And then uh, I can remember having the conversation after it all pretty well got figured out. And, you know, Brett Olin from CCI, who's retired now, he's the guy that really figured out how to mass produce it. Mm -hmm. And I can remember him saying, well, how many rounds do you think we need to order the first year, Dave? He said, I, I, I think I'll order 4 million rounds. I said, I think you're off by at least an order of magnitude. Oh, no way, Dave. There's no possible way you're ever going to sell that much. And I said, Steve. You're talking 22 Magnum platforms, which everybody and their dog makes, and all they have to do is change the barrel. Nothing else. That's mm. all they have to do is change the barrel, and it's going to be the most accurate rimfire rifle with twice the range of anything else out there. I said, they're going to sell the living snot out of this. Mm. Nah, I, 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 don't, I don't think so. And I think the first year we sold, we had orders for almost 100 million rounds. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, we just celebrated here not that long ago the 20th anniversary yeah. of the 17 HMR. Yep. And I, I tell you, so when the 17 HMR came out, I wasn't working here then. Obviously, I know the stories because I've been around. Yeah. But that was, as a consumer, that was some of the first times that I really started paying. I'd bought Hornady bullets in the past. I'd loaded Hornady bullets. But it's really the first time I started to notice a lot more buzz about mm -hmm. hornady that, that's a lot hornady, of print ads a lot of yeah. a lot of articles were being written and you know it was it was starting to it it, it helped the company yeah you know it, it cross, was, a, cross a ledge it was i think turn a corner maybe the first time hornady ever got front page on rifleman magazine yeah it was, still it was life like size life size 17 mark keith yep yep mark yeah. keith yeah mark and i mean that was really the event i think where and it was it was after that where steve finally sat down one day and he said okay just let me know what you're doing yeah let me know what your ideas are but you just go and so it was i mean looking at it, I, would, I mean not that the company didn't make ammo before that it, it always said made ammo but that was really kind of the beginning of the company's ascension yeah, right. if That's you will into the into, even though yeah. it wasn't ammo that we loaded yeah you yeah. know but it, it it got the it got us press and it creative got us visibility mm -hmm. and it and it started establishing that reputation of innovation you know, innovation yeah. yeah and yeah. that innovation once he handed you the reins we don't have to spend a ton of time talking yeah, about each sure. of them but once he handed you the reins it, immediately following that i feel like there was just a home run product development at least every couple of years whether that would be Superformance, well, lever evolution. It was almost every year. SST. Didn't we have a running record of like 10 years in a row yeah. of product of the year? Yeah. And the the thing that I would always go back to on some of these is some of the products we did were not, some are Grand Slam home runs. Some are, you know, out of the universe home runs. And some were just kind of a base hit. But mm -hmm. even on a base hit, you, you learn something that then went into the next product that would be a Grand Slam. So yeah. it was yep. it was kind of an interesting time there where yeah. well you know all all of the the uh well 30 tc you yeah know, i well, mean that 32 tc led to the 6.5 creedmoor yeah, yeah well it also yeah it led to yeah the 30 tc so that was i mean that story we can go into that one yeah. real quick but i mean thompson center wanted a cartridge so dave and i don't know who helped you he wanted his own 
branded cartridge. And so I want it in 30 caliber. And it's like, oh, brother, what are you doing 30 caliber? That's not just going to be a yawner, you know? Mm-hmm. So we decided, hey, let's make a short little stubby cartridge that gives 30-06 performance. And it was... And that's when you, yeah. that's when you dug in and created essentially superformance performance because this relationship with yeah. St. Mark's at the time. So now you had, uh, you know, kind that's, of a, a, a 308 Winchester style cartridge, uh, but with this added performance. So it was yeah. about 200 feet per second faster. So yeah, now you've got a quote unquote, yeah, that, quotes, that was the leading, yeah. ed- that was the leading edge of what led to the superformance four years later, superformance yeah, and, and lever evolution for that matter, as well, far as the propellants go. Lever evolution to me was huge for the company and the industry because the idea and those materials and what they could do and what you could do with them and figuring out how to actually put them in a bullet led to critical defense, critical duty. duty. I mean, which are just absolutely. Monoflex now. Yeah, Monoflex, which are just, you know, absolutely out of, you know, grand slam home run products. Yep. Well, and and that led to the first FBI contract and now our second FBI contract for their service ammo for nine millimeter. Just been remarkable. And then you mentioned the Creedmoor and we'll yeah, have a completely separate podcast. That'll be an hour of just six, five Creedmoor <laughs> yeah. and that whole story. Um, but after the, yeah, with the 30 TC leading mm-hmm. into the Creedmoor, I feel like just on the propellant side, like superformance, I feel like on the design standpoint, some of that, you know, the 30 degree shoulder yeah. and, and the chamber geometry that, that was almost became standardized for us where it wasn't just the cartridge, just the the reamer design and the, the tolerance is associated with that. Well, and, and Joe would work a lot with, or sorry, Dave and Joe would work a lot in, in unison on projects. So yeah. Joe would start developing yeah. cases and, uh, you know, so there was, and other people learned things, you know, uh, along the way, of course. Mm-hmm. And, but you're right. That was the foundation then that came to be kind of how our cartridge geometry, uh, kind of got standardized, I yeah, guess. It really yeah. did. And, what that allowed the shooter, the, the, the consumer, factory rifles, factory ammo, winning combination. And oh, it didn't yeah. always used to be that way. And it's that way today that you can get, you should reasonably expect some high performance out of a factory rifle with a good chamber design and good factory ammunition. Well, I mean, the Ruger Americans are a good example of that. I don't, I've, you know, in writing for guns and ammo now, I've probably tested three or four of them. And I have, I have yet to see a Ruger American in any caliber with good ammo that does not shoot sub MOA. Oh yeah. And I mean, 15 years ago, that was unheard of. Yeah. To see rifles that shot yeah. that well. Yep. Yeah. At, at that price point, you know? Yep. Yeah. And I, and I, I'm not just trying to single out Ruger because, mo- you know, Mossberg is, heck, I did a, I shot a Ruger American in a, uh, 6.5 PRC and a Mossberg Patriot 6.5 Creedmoor for a long range hunting article I did for guns and ammo. Mm. And that Mossberg shot like seven tenths of an inch at a hundred yards. I was absolutely floored. Oh yeah, like, sure. Holy cow. I yeah. mean, this is a hard shooting rifle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's and the thing with economical. a good chamber design and a good cartridge yep. design. If you launch the bullet out straight, Seth touches on it in this podcast form all the time. Mm-hmm. You, you're going to start that bullet out straight. Yep. You're going to end up with a, with a winner. Yeah. A lot of the key to a lot of these new cartridges right now is the, sh- the sharper shoulder angles. And then we remember we tightened up the throat. We said, yeah. you know, we're, we're not going to use this Slide. World, World, War, World War II chamber design throat design where you got three thousandths of clearance in the, the throat. Mm-hmm. We're going to take that down to a half to three quarters of a thousandths. And that's where things really started from an accuracy standpoint of an out of the box cartridge. Yep. And it, yeah, simply works. And, and that was really verified with the 17 HMR because the 17 HMR is half thou clearance in the oh, throat. Yeah. And I so can remember the first telling, time you, you, we collectively yep. did that. And oh. I can remember telling Harold Waterman at Marlin, you have got to keep these bore and groove and throat diameters tight. Cause if you don't, you're going to lose all this performance that everybody wants. And they, they went to great lengths to do that. And those, Good. those original marlin 17 v's and all that kind of stuff man those things shot i mean they I, just i mean they were six seven tenths of an inch yeah. 100 yards rifles right all the time i went to walmart and bought a 160 dollar marlin heavy barrel i have one. and it yep. yeah it yep. shoots sub minute at 100 yep. don't even think about it yep so what i you know we we touch on it in this uh in this podcast quite a bit 
a lot of the products that come to be are because of personal interest. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, <laughs> Dave, Dave embodies that in many ways because uh, Dave is a real aficionado of the lever action yep. uh, gun. So, you know, that's why, I mean, it's not why lever evolution happened necessarily, no. but it's a huge part of why it yeah. happened because Dave likes lever guns. We were looking for ideas and Steve said, oh, come on, lever guns. I said, Steve, Winchester's made like 6 million 3030s over the years. Marlin's probably made a quarter of that. So you're talking something where a market is out there for seven and a half million rifles. I mean. Yeah, just buy one box of ammo. Even if only a quarter of those still exist or ever get shot. Yeah. And every guy buys one box of ammo. Yeah, okay, I see your point. Yeah, well, and uh, yeah, like you said, it's it's kind of personal interests that kind of guide our product development. But a lot of that uh, is personal passion and yeah. when when you're at an employer that hands you the reins that trusts you to do a good job on the design standpoint and then you're surrounded by other people who are passionate users of the product whatever those products may be uh you're going to just naturally develop good products because you're a user yourself and with me it neil touched on it earlier it, it really uh, there is I, i'm not a in your face kind of person but at, at some level, I am extremely competitive. And when I came into this whole thing, it was, ah, you know, Federal makes the best ammo and, you know, Sierra, that, that's the only bullets that'll shoot. And I'm like, come on, that's, these guys don't have the market cornered on understanding of this or how to do this. And a lot of that was that I wanted to, and I told Steve and I had a lot of talks about that. And I said, Steve, I want to make this company succeed and I want to put some other companies in their place and displace them. and Go for it. Well, you you definitely did that in spades, especially on the product development side. And we could go on about all those products, and we will separately in some future podcasts. One kind of turning point in uh, the the history of Hornady uh, was the purchase of a Doppler radar. Oh yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. we'll talk more about that in great length. Yeah. But, but real quick, how did you strong arm somebody into thinking that was a good idea? And then what was that development like? Learning how to use it. And, and some of the products that spawned from that. Well, I had used Doppler radars earlier in my career down in New Mexico. I mean, we were shooting, you know, 120 millimeter tank gun stuff and 155 projectors. So I, I knew what they would do. And um, it was basically, you know, okay, you know, th at that time it was, everybody was wanting to get into long range. And, and that's when I went to Steve and I said, Steve, you know, if you really want to understand what's happening and you really want to know what effect the things you're doing, you're going to have to get something like this. You cannot tell this from a chronograph. Oh, that's a lot of money, Emery. And I get, yeah, but Steve, what you can do with this, and nobody else, need, I think at the time, Barnes had one, Barnes had one mm -hmm. in 2011. We got ours in 14. And I told Steve, Steve I, I can make changes to a bullet and I can tell you what it's doing 1,500 yards from the muzzle. Had you used one of these back in New Mexico? I used not one of these. They didn't exist back okay. then. It was a Terma, which was a Danish company back okay. then, in Weibel, which is uh, another Danish company. But I had used Doppler radar okay. before. And how how did that go? Wasn't it Steve was hunting? Maybe I shouldn't. Tell no, you story. probably. I think <laughs> yeah, better, some better, of the yeah. some of the secrets should stay secret. I, I better okay. not tell that story. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, we got the Doppler radar. Well, I think and there was a. Yeah, there was there was a purchase for one thing or the radar, and you you somebody at the company had to choose. Some so. yeah, and a certain individual at the company that was sticking his neck out a little bit had to sign for it. And yeah, yeah. Well, we got it. <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah, leave it at that. yeah, we got, got the radar. Sorry. You know, we I I knew, and I had Jaden, and I've been working with Jaden and helping Jaden understand some of this stuff too. You know, we we knew the principles of how to get really good aerodynamics out of bullets. And of course, you never would have found this out without the radar, but the mm. first thing we did when we went out and started shooting, it's like, these drag curves do not look right. And you know, look here, Jason, from 300 to 600 yards, the BC is going down. It's like, there's something physical going on with these bullets that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And you guys had looked at the drag curve that... Uh, Hotel Hollow Points. Well, Barnes yeah. or somebody else had put out. And that same thing was yeah, occurring was, in the graph, yeah. but they didn't know right. what they were. Somebody so else we, didn't know. So that's kind of when I said, you know, 
these, and I, I always suspected from the get-go, even with the VMAXs, that with the plastic we were using, because I knew, you know, from an aeronautical engineering background, which I had, that, you know, the temperatures on the points of these tips is way, way, way beyond the melting point of this plastic. And it's like, these tips have got to be deforming. And that's basically, you know, there was, we tried to actually mm-hmm. measure it by firing into gelatin at 500 yards and this and that, which, you know, we got a few tips that were like, yeah, this tip looks a little bit blackened and kind of funny, but you know, you, it was really nothing you could quantitatively hold up and go, yeah, here it is, mm-hmm. you know? And we finally got at it by, okay, uh, hey, you guys in the shop, go make me 20 aluminum tips. And we shot the aluminum tips beside the plastic ones. It's like, yep, sure enough, no question. These tips are melting and flattening or deforming or something. Mm-hmm. And that's what led to, you know, the uh, heat shield tips. And further work led to the A tips. And I'm not going to say on this podcast, but some yeah. of the other stuff we found out yeah. that is why the A tips are made to where they are. But we, you would have never found out any of that stuff without a radar. There would have been no yeah. way to measure that. And I feel like the ELDX and ELD match is now kind of like the 17 HMR and Lev Revolution is one of those standards. It's kind of the, you know, an industry yep. standard. The white box, red lettering, Hornady match ammo is kind of the standard for yep. factory match ammunition out there. And and I'm not going to say that there aren't maybe guys with PhDs sitting at the Army Research Lab that maybe didn't know some of this stuff that we found out. But, you know, from our standpoint, it was like a lot of that stuff isn't in publication. No, it's and not in publication and, right and, now. And you don't know about it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Jaden and I going out there screwing around and, oh, hey, that's interesting, you know, and. And it is, you know, and that's the other part to this whole thing. I mean, Dave, you and several other people in the company, but there's a bit of a guild here, you know. I mean, there's Dave, there's uh, Joe, Joe Teelan, obviously, Joe Thielen, Mitch yep. Middlestad, yep. bunch of the other engineers, uh, Jeremy Millard with Lever Evolution back in the day, and then uh, Jaden, and, and heck, yeah, you Ron worked Damon. with Jaden. So, I yeah. mean, you know, one begets the other, and yep. this institutional yep. knowledge just kind of trickles well, down. there is a lot of institutional knowledge and in some of the stuff that Dave referenced about you know, that we learned with the radar, that's still institutional. It's not published anywhere. Yep. Um, and one thing I can say from working with Jaden as long as I did, Dave must have done a tremendous job in sharing his, not only his knowledge, but the way he approached a problem set and his, and his problem solving steps. Cause Jaden, uh, would reference that a lot. Mm. And, yep. and so Dave, you, you must've shared that well. And our senior ballistician now, Jaden Quinlan, is often running to. Yeah, you uh, should yeah. be happy about that. Should, I, he's, well, you know, he's he's on his own program and he's amazing. Just between you know, you guys, that was part of my decision for retiring from here when I did because it's like you know I've had my run and it's been an awesome run, and you know, it's definitely starting to plateau. And it's like, hey, there's you know a couple guys here that need to have some room to move up, and mm. that. That honestly cool. did go into some of my oh, decision well. to retire when I did. Well, you, you definitely handed it off nicely because yep. yeah, Jaden's done a phenomenal job. And, and he's had some, he's had some home runs oh, yes, yeah, in a big way, yep. you know, yeah. grand slams. And, and you know, to, to deflect even more, I mean, back to Joe, I mean, it, Joe, Joe's got some background in aerodynamics from the degree he got, cause he did some work with that in college too. And really Joe, me and Jaden, you know, I, there were a number of afternoons after some radar testing or reducing some data, we all sat and, you know, it was a three-way bouncing stuff off. And Joe, Joe definitely played a, a significant oh, yeah. role in a lot of that. So, and I, I don't want anybody to think that I'm the guy that, that did yeah. all this. Yeah, that's, it takes that's a village, not as they true. say. No, no. Yeah. But I mean, it's just, but yeah, you and these guys, everybody yep. contributed immensely to yeah. some of these incredible advancements. I'm, I may have been a catalyst and a motivator, but there was far more people yeah. that contributed oh, yeah. all of this than just me. Well, it, it definitely uh, changed the scape and the scope of what Hornady is today. And so we have a lot to thank you for for that. So you do uh, you mentioned you elected to retire from Hornady and you kind of put a cherry on top of a career in ballistics uh, with your final, final employment there. So you're completely retired now. Yep. Real quick, uh, once you retired from Hornady, like I said, you put a cherry on top of a career that was pretty darn impressive already. What'd you do after Hornady? Well, 
my wife and I had lived in New Mexico for about six or seven years, very early in life, right after we got out of college. And we, we really liked it down there and kind of always had a desire to go back there. And as you guys know, winters in Nebraska can be pretty crappy. <laughs> and I was, you know, as I got older and older and older, it just, and you guys will probably find that out too. As you get older and older, it just, the cold just get, got me more and more and more. And I just got up one morning and told Linda, you know, I just, I like Nebraska. I love the people here, but I want to go somewhere that's warmer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'd like to go somewhere that's got a lot more public land than there is here. And it turns out that the guy that I told you about early on, right after I got out of the Air Force, that we worked together on all the ballistic stuff down there, he got moved up to the director of the test center down there. And he called me up and said, man, I need a chief engineer really bad. Would you come back here and work? And, and that's said, at the yeah, New nice. Mexico School? Mexico Institute of Technology. It's a mining and technology school. It's a, I mean, it's ranked up there in the top 10 technical schools in the country. It's a very, very good school. And I told him, how many years do I have to work before I can get retirement? And you got to work five years. Okay. (laughs) So I'd worked just long enough to draw some retirement from New Mexico education system and spent the end of my career doing ballistics work again. I was shooting 120s, 155s, 105s, you know, can't say it without a smile on your face when you're talking about shooting fly stuff in the mountains. Yeah. And I did a bunch of work with a company doing, you know, long range guided 155 stuff. And we were testing these things out for survivability and initial telemetry acquisition, all that kind of stuff at like about four miles into a side of a mountain. And there's just something really cool about shooting a 155 at four miles and you're sitting there waiting almost seven seconds for the thing to hit the hill and you can almost watch the thing go down there if the sun's just right. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, there it is. There's no doubt when that 155 round hits the side of a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> You've probably seen that, yeah. Seth. You yeah. probably did too. Oh, you yeah. probably saw some artillery fire. And it's yeah. just all of the stuff we did at Hornady directly applies and directly scales up this large scale stuff. Awesome. Well, so, like I said, kind fun. of a, a cherry on top of the of the career. Now, hopefully, fully retired, you can do some riding, do some more bird yep. hunting. I know you like to yep. your wing shooter. Um, so that's a hell of a career for not. That's the right term. That's yeah, a hell of a career. There's a few other little things though. I mean, Dave, yeah. uh, uh, President's hundred shooter back in the day. Oh, yeah. I was going to say the yeah. CMP awards. Yeah, <laughs> used to go shoot yeah. uh, Camp Perry all the time, and then that was a fluke. Uh, yeah, with oh the, yeah, you accidentally with an, M, with an M1A. Well, yeah, that that was the right shooter being in the right place on the right day because that was the day when we had a bunch of thunder. The day we shot the President's 100, a, a line of thunderstorms went through the night before and it got really cold. And it was, I mean, it was Nebraska windy that morning. It was 25 oh, wow. to 30 miles an hour. And, you know, for me, it's just like, well, you know, it's kind of like shooting a duck. Don't pull the trigger till it comes back, you know, an offhand. It's like, don't pull the trigger till it's coming back into the black. <laughs> and I shot my usual 88 and it's like, well, I'm out of this and come back off the line. And here's these AMU and Marine Corps guys. Yeah, I had two misses. Yeah, I had three misses. And it's like, seriously? Holy cow, what'd you have? Oh, I had a 48. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and then I think I shot a 99 with eight X's at a hundred rapid fire. And then I started getting nervous. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And, uh, I really didn't, it was a brand new I'm gun. In there. I'm in there. Yeah. yeah. I'm, it's like, I'm in there. I'm in there. And I, and I didn't have a good zero at 600 because I, it was a brand new gun. And I think my first shot at 600 was a seven. And I'm like, Oh no, man, don't do this to me. And I got it back in the middle and, you know, shot like a 96 or something at 600 and I made number 83. Wow. But if it hadn't have been for the wind and me being a Nebraska shooter where it's like, oh yeah, you know, the wind, yeah, you always shoot in the wind here. If you can't shoot in the wind, you're never going to hit the target. Right. So that's kind of how I got into the President's 100. And yeah. Camp Perry was a big deal for us. And then for sure. Dave yep. also worked pretty hard with the CMP to get the vintage sniper rifle matches yep. in place, which is still going strong yeah. today. We still make vintage sniper yeah. ammo. Yep. So yep. again, it's all about personal interest. A little bit. You know, yeah. it has a lot to do with it. Anyway. Yeah, well, he's definitely left his mark in the industry, you could say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that sniper match was cool because it's a lot of guys like the old rifles, but they're getting old like me and they don't have the eyes to shoot that. And it's like, yeah. hey, here's a match where some of these old guys that want to come out and do this can get a rifle and come out here and yeah. shoot and have some fun and, and shoot reasonably well. Yeah. It's all about having fun. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's, I've heard Steve Hornady say that many times. Yeah. We sell fun. And you designed fun. And yeah, like I said uh, a minute ago, you left your mark on the industry for sure. So yeah, we, on behalf of everybody at Hornady and everybody as a shooter, 
thanks for everything you did for us and for the industry. Well, it was a great run, and it sincerely was my it made my career. It was a lot of fun, and I I appreciate every opportunity I had here. I miss you guys. I miss Hornady. It's <laughs> it's great to be back here. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we can't let anybody off the show without asking one final question. So before we wrap this up, if you had to pick one cartridge and one bullet for the rest of your life, you could have unlimited guns, unlimited ammo, one cartridge and one bullet, what are you going to pick? It'd probably be the 6.5 Creedmoor. I've done so much shooting with the 6.5 Creedmoor. There's not a whole lot you can't do with that cartridge. I, I like that answer. And I expected that or the 6.5 PRC. I mean, the, the best, I, I told you the story on yeah. the way over here, but I down near New Mexico, I did a long range course for uh doe security guys marine corps army all that kind of stuff and uh, one of the things we did was we go up on top of a 7500 foot mountain and there's literally off of the north side of that about a thousand foot cliff and i could get them a target at 1550 yards at about a 30 degree angle so i mean we i mm. i thoroughly exercised yeah. poured off and I had a fifth special forces group out there and they wanted to go up and shoot and they all had 300 wind mags and they're banging away at this 1550 yard target. And I don't think anybody'd hit it. And I pulled out my cell phone and, you know, my weather station and watched the wind for about 10 minutes and punched everything in. And I just had my, you know, my TC Bartland barreled, you know, yeah. six, five Creedmoor hunting rifle. And now it's got a good night bore scope on it, but I just watched the conditions for a while. My first shot at 1550, I hit about three inches right of center of that target and That'll i hit it three more times in a row and i said okay i'm quitting because it's just gonna get worse from <laughs> yeah. here and every single one of them guys what the heck are you shooting and i said just my six five creedmoor hunting rifle yeah holy you know i had my plastic bag with about 100 rounds of 147s in it let me shoot that thing and they shot up all my ammo yeah. <laughs> i gotta get one of these things yeah you do yeah you do everybody should have one i'm not gonna let you out of here though what bullet? I'm guessing the 143 because I know you like to hunt. If you had to pick the bullet to go with it, what would you pick? Probably all around, yeah, the 143 because you can do some serious match shooting with it, and it's also a good hunting bullet. Excellent. I, you, you're not going to beat probably the 135 A-tip in that for a pure match bullet, mm -hmm. but the 143 is probably all around the yeah. best bullet. Awesome. Neil, anything for our guest here today before we wrap this one up? No, it's good to have you. It is. Good to be uh, here, guys. I, great, I have other stories, but yeah, we'll some save of them, those the statute of limitations yeah. might not be up on them. <laughs> oh, so gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, before this devolves, Dave, thanks for taking the time to sit down with us. We appreciate it for sure. You bet, guys. Thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. it like I said, it's great to be back and see you guys. Awesome. Everybody, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast, hearing more about uh, the senior ballistic scientist for Hornady for many years, Dave Emery and uh, all of the amazing innovation and the passion that he has for this industry. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you on the next one.